0: Go ahead and subscribe, and you'll be the first to know when we release more content in the future. Thanks for listening in, and be blessed.
1: You ready for the Word? Good, let's dive in. Let's pray real fast. Father, again, we thank you as always that you're here. That's what matters most, Lord. So this morning, Jesus, we thank you that your favor is resting on us. Right here in this room, Lord, we thank you that your favor is resting on us. So Jesus, this morning, we just relax in your presence. We just rest in you. Father, we thank you that the battle's already been won. We thank you that the war is over. We thank you, Father, that now all that's left is for us to reap where we have not sown. And so, Father, even as you gave us the word at the beginning of this year, even now we still draw on that, that we we still have many areas to reap where we have not sown. And, Father, I thank you that even though the last end of this year is coming around quickly, I thank you that with you, you want us to live in the present, live in the moment. So right now, Father, I thank you that even now, even in this moment, I thank you that today won't be a regular church service for anyone. That Father, today will be a day that we can mark on our calendar, that we look back on and we say, something happened then. Something changed. And So, Father, whatever uh, attack or assault is being leveled against anyone in this church, we ask right now that that attack and that assault be ended in the name of Jesus. Father, if anyone is being attacked in this church, we thank you that your blood covers everyone in here. And so death has to move on. We thank you, Father, that you are covering everyone. This morning, we rest under the shadow of your wings. So, Jesus, we thank you again for all that you've done, all that you're doing and all that you will do. And I thank you, Father, that this morning you will be who only you can be, a heavenly Father to everyone in here. So we thank you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Everyone said? Amen. 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 Let's dive into the word. So this morning... I want to uh, go a different direction from where we've been. We've been talking about words lately, and that wasn't on purpose. Uh, but this morning, I want to talk about communion. So are you ready? Beautiful. Let's dive into it. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30. We'll pick up at verse 15. God is speaking to Moses. He says this, see, I have said before you today, life and good, death and evil, In that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, and to keep his commandments, his statues, and his judgments, that you may live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. But if your heart turns away so that you do not hear and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you, that I have set before you life and death blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. Now he goes on to say, I think one or two more verses, but I stopped here because this is where we're going to kind of live just for a moment. Pick up one more time in verse 18. He says, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish, saying that if you serve other gods, you leave him. You don't do what he told you to do. He says, you shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. One more time in verse 19, I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that the, that both you and your descendants may live. Notice the choice that you make affects our children as well. You see that? He says you choose life so that you and your children will live. The choices that we make affect our children. And right here he says this, choose life. Now, to me, I put that in gold because I thought that's one of those obvious things. You know, if you tell someone, I want you, I have two Glasses of water in front of you to a thirsty person, right? And one glass, there's purified water. and the other glass, there's poison. So choose one, which one you want. Now, it kind of seems like common sense. No one's going to choose the poison, right? But yet yeah, God says, I'm putting life in front of you. I'm putting death. Choose life. Which means that it's not obvious or it's not instinctive in all of us to say, we're just going to naturally do the things that we're supposed to do. We're just going to naturally choose life. So right here, it, it just got my attention. And I just thought that was a cool little tidbit. And the more I thought about it, honestly, just kind of last night coming into this morning, you know that anytime God tells you to do something, it's always because it's not a natural thing. Take marriage, for example. We talked about marriage last week. We'll talk a little bit about marriage this week. Take marriage, for example. When it comes to the husband and wife dynamic, God says, husbands, do what to your wives? Love your wife as as Christ loved the church, right? Meaning, if it was natural for men to just naturally love their wives, it would be redundant for God to say it. Does that make sense? Now, I say that because uh, and, I, and I'm not saying that because I actually it was in my notes. Me and uh, the Reverend were speaking this morning. He didn't know I was going to say this, but it's not natural for men to do that. And the reason why I say that is this. Men are very uh, uh, mission driven. We like to check things off on our on our list. Now, I say that, but think about it. Think about it as a man. Think about it. If it was natural for me to just naturally love my wife, then God wouldn't need to say it. It would be redundant. But for me as a man, I'm very mission-driven. In other words, I'm very task-driven. I like to check things off of my list. I know when I come home, I have to do this, this, and this. When I get to work, I have to do this, this, and this. And a lot of times, Christina, her biggest complaint, like from this morning, her biggest complaint is, you're not romantic enough. (laughs) Now, I say that to say this. To me, I'm checking things off, right? When I, I know I have to do this. Walk in the house, kiss your wife, check. Walk in the house, hug your wife. Check. Walk in the house, don't talk about yourself. Check. Ask her how her day was. Check, check, check. You see what I'm saying? Go down the list. Last week she said, you don't help enough with Parker. Where's Parker? Check. You see what I'm saying? We're very task oriented. It's not natural for us to just come home and just be affectionate and loving and, oh, I'm just telling you all my emotions and I'm just, oh, tell me about yourself. This is not natural for men, but we have to learn. And God says, husbands, love, because it's not normal. At the same time, for the women who are laughing. At the same time, he says, wives do what? As Christ did. I'm sorry, as Christ did to the father. Submit. So at the same time, again, if he says it, then that means it's not a natural thing. Now, it's not anything against women to say that. What he's, what, what he's saying is this is a compliment. You're such a good leader. You make so many great choices. He's saying, stop, make choices or else he won't make any choice. <laughs> the day will come. When he needs to make the right choice. And if you make every choice for him, he'll never make a choice. So I need you to help him make a choice by giving him an opportunity to make some choices. (laughs) (laughs) I know there's not many of us in here this morning, but all the women said, Amen. And Christina said, Amen. So here we go. So again, if it's natural, Seriously, if it's natural for us to do it, then it's redundant for God to say it. So again, he says right here, hey, choose life. It's not normal. Some people are not going to choose life. But he says, let me help you choose life. And if you'll choose life, it won't just affect you. It will also affect your children. So then I want to point you out. Look at verse 19 one more time. He says, today I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you. Now, when I saw this word against you, I thought, it's like he already knows they're going to choose death. Think about it. He didn't say, I'm going to call heaven and earth today as witnesses for you. He said, I'm going to call them as witnesses against you. It's like he knows they're going to mess up. So when they mess up, know this, the moment you make a mistake, heaven and earth are going to be witnesses against you, that we made this agreement today at this moment. And to me, that was like, God, why did you already, like, you set them up for failure. So I thought, let me go look up the word against you. Now, the word against you is translated uh, very loosely in the Hebrew, very loosely. In fact, you can't actually find the Hebrew word. It's... The word vakem, but you can't actually find a Hebrew word that puts the two together. So it's almost like the the translator said it means against, but they can't actually make a Hebrew word out of it. So, again, if you go back and try to look up this word, you won't find it because that word doesn't actually exist. Really weird. But when I was looking at the word against you, all of a sudden something else stuck out to me. Now, before I show you that, notice one more time. He says, I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you. Let me say this. The way the covenant works is this. God is saying, I'm making a covenant with Israel at this point. Not us, but with Israel. I'm making a covenant with them. And this is the covenant. All right, Whatever the covenant is, if you obey me, you do what I told you to do, you'll always be the head. You'll never be the tail. You'll always be the top. You'll never be the bottom. You'll always be a winner. You'll never be a loser. When people come to attack you, I'll turn them seven different ways against you. No matter what happens to you, I will bless you. And the world will be blessed because of you. So all these blessings will come on you and they'll overtake you. And so all these things God says, I'm going to do for you if you obey me. But if you don't obey me, then all the curses are going to come on you. Sickness, death, you will die, poverty, everything, all the curse, it will come on you. And he says today, heaven and earth are going to be a witness against you. Meaning I don't have to do anything. Heaven and earth will respond to you. Does that make sense? Now, because heaven and earth, they are the executors. All right. Now, I say that. I say that on purpose. Let me show you why. I looked up the phrase against you in the Hebrew, and I came across something that I was not expecting to find. I came across this little word I put in gold. Now, don't forget Hebrew reads from right to left. Now, I know you didn't want to learn Hebrew this morning, but I want to show you something really, really cool. Deuteronomy 30 verse 19 in the Hebrew reads from right to left. God says, I call as witness against you today, blank, heaven and earth, life and death. And he goes on to say blessing and cursing. Choose life. I didn't want to put the rest because we'd have 15 slides to show all the Hebrew. But I want to show you something. You see this right here in the gold? Again, Hebrew reads from right to left. On the right, you see that X symbol? That's the letter Alev. All right? You might know where we're going. You see the symbol right beside it on the left-hand side, our left. That's the letter Tav. Put the two together, you have what? Alev Tav. (laughs) Now, I wasn't expecting to find Alev Tav there. If you don't remember what Alev Tav is, don't forget, in the book of Revelation, Jesus said, I am Alpha and Omega, which is Alpha and Omega are Greek letters. Jesus was a Jew speaking to another Jew. He would not have said, I am Alpha Omega. He would have said, I am Alev, I am Tav. Alev is the first letter of Greek. Omega is the last letter in the Greek. Alev is the letter, the first letter in the Hebrew. Tav is the last letter. Today, the Jewish people still, rabbis, don't know what Alev Tav is. And it appears all over the Old Testament but they don't know what it means. So what they said was this, one day when the Messiah comes, he'll explain everything. And when he does, every jot, every tittle will understand it all. But because they refused Jesus, after Jesus had died and ascended to God, he came down to John and said, oh, by the way, I am Alev Tav. Let me tie in everything that you were expecting me to be. Jesus fulfilled everything and he did everything they expected, but they still rejected him. So when he comes, he says, I am Alev Tav. Now right here, what do you see? God says, I call as witness today. I'm sorry. I call as witness against you today. I left off, meaning Jesus is there. Jesus is there. they didn't see Jesus, obviously. Um, but Jesus, God is bringing Jesus into the equation. He says today, I'm calling today as witness against you, Jesus. And then he goes on to say heaven and earth, meaning what? Heaven and earth are the executors. Jesus is the witness. Are you with me? In fact, the word right here for witness, I didn't put it because I don't remember on the top of my head. But even in the Hebrew, it's missing the, the the I am. It's missing the mem that would make it plural. So it's actually not I call heaven and earth as witness says. It's I call heaven and earth as witness one. And heaven and earth are not one, they're two. Meaning when you put our Tav into it, God was saying to the Jewish people back then, I'm calling one witness against you today. It's Jesus and heaven and earth will be the executors of the deal. Are you with me? Now, as long as Jesus is witness, that means Jesus doesn't have to actually execute anything. Jesus today, where is he at? At the right hand of the father, right? Meaning Jesus does not have to come down. In fact, in the same chapter, he says this. Don't say in your heart who will ascend to heaven and bring the word down. Who will descend from the depths and bring him back up? A quote that we see in Romans chapter 10. He says, no, no, no. The word is near you. It's in your and in your the word that we preach. Right here, God is saying, Jesus will not have to come down to execute anything else for you. Jesus will stay right where he's at, at the right hand of the Father, always making intercession for us. Are you with me? And Jesus will be the witness. Meaning, when you fulfill your part, then he'll say, Father, they fulfilled their part. Heaven and earth respond. Are you with me? Now, what does this have to do with communion? Are you ready? (laughs) Now, watch this. In Hosea chapter 2. God says something interesting in Hosea chapter one. What happens is this. Hosea is a prophet and God says, I want you to go. and I want you to marry a prostitute. Remember the story? God says, I want you to marry a harlot. All right. Old King James harlot. And after he marries her, after some time, she goes out and she falls back into her old ways. She starts prostituting herself again. We don't know why. Maybe for money. We don't know. Maybe for some sense of fulfillment. We don't know. But after she prostitutes herself, I'm sorry. She has some children first. Then she prostitutes herself out. And Hosea is embarrassed like any man would. His wife has gone out. She belongs to someone else financially, legally. She, she belongs. And God tells Hosea, I want you to pick yourself back up, and I want you to go and find her. And not just find her, I want you to buy her back. Now, if it wasn't embarrassing enough that his wife cheated on him, she left him, she's prostituting herself, now he has to go buy her back. So he has to humble himself, <laughs> tremendously humble himself. And go get his wife back. And the entire process through in Hosea, God says, I want you to do this because this is what Israel has done to me. I bought her. She belonged to me, but she went and she prostituted herself with other people, with other gods. So you know what I'm going to do, Hosea? I'm not going to rain down judgment, fire, and brimstone. You know what I'm going to do, Hosea? This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go find her. I'm going to go buy her back. And then I'm going to walk her into the wilderness. And in the wilderness, she's going to forget about all the gods that she served, all the things that tempted her. All the things she talked about, she won't even be able to say the names of the bales in her mouth. They'll all be gone. He said, when I pull her into the wilderness, I'm going to turn her heart towards me. Translation, she's going to fall in love with me in the wilderness. And then he goes on to say something in Hosea chapter 2 that I'll explain. But it's a beautiful picture of all of us. You see, for the Jew, they say, well, that's what God did for us. Let me say this. In fact, let me show you. Let me show you why it's really for us in the new covenant. Are you ready? In Hosea chapter 2, verse 19, God says, I will betroth you to me forever. Now, let me ask you this. Was Israel ever actually married to Christ? Who is the bride of Christ? The church, meaning he's not talking about Israel right now. Who is he talking about? He's talking about us. He says, I will betroth you to me forever. Even though you sin, even though you left him, even though you were saved, you went back into the world. Even though you were saved and you made all those mistakes. He says, don't worry. We're married. I will betroth you to me. Not for uh, not until your next sin. I will betroth you to me for how long? forever. You will belong to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice and loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. Now you see verse 20 right here where he says, you shall know the Lord. Again, I decided, let me look up some of these words in the Hebrew. Just let me look up because I want to know for my own edification, for my own self. I want to know. And when I looked up the word, you shall know the Lord, all of a sudden a word popped out again he will never believe what word popped out again. Watch this. In the Hebrew, God says, I will betroth you from right to left. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know Aleph Tav. Again, I was not expecting to find this. I promise you, I wasn't doing a study on Aleph Tav. I've done that before, but I wasn't doing it for this. He says, I betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know Jesus. Then he says, you shall know. In the Hebrew, I'm sorry, in the English, you shall know the Lord. The word Lord is Yahweh. He says this, you shall know Aleph Tav, which is Yahweh, Jesus, who is the Lord. Whenever you see God in the Old Testament, God always is the word Elohim, meaning God as creator. The world knows God, creator, all right? But who they don't know is Yahweh. Yahweh, or Lord, is covenant friend. That's Jesus. (laughs) He says, you shall know Jesus, who is Yahweh. Oh, I love it. Isn't that good? Isn't that beautiful? Now notice, how does, how does he say you'll know him? How does he say you'll know him? Now, while I was preparing for this, this question popped up, and my first response was to go backwards. But I felt impressed from the Lord. Don't go back. Go forward. This is your answer. How will you know the Lord? How does the Lord want you to know him? Let me say this. At work, people at work, they know Matthew at work. At home, my wife knows Matthew, the husband. Parker knows Matthew, the father. Jesus says, I want you as my bride to know me. Are you ready? Now, this is how he wants us to know him. Watch this. It shall come to pass, the very next verse, it shall come to pass in that day that I will answer, says the Lord, and I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth. Now, real quick, I will answer in what day? In the day that you leave me, in the day that I bring you back, in the day you realize I lost everything that I thought I had, but it wasn't really from you, so... I didn't need it anyways. And the day that you come to me and ask me for anything in that day, when you ask me, he says, I will answer, says the Lord. I will answer the heavens. No, notice what, what? Notice he doesn't say I'll answer who you. He says, I'll answer who? No, no. he says, verse 21. He says that, that well, I will answer says Lord. I will answer the heavens. Now watch this. If Christina comes to me, and ask me a question. I say, hold on. I can't answer you. I have to answer this first. <laughs> All right. Our marriage is going to be at a standstill, right? But Jesus is saying, hey, look, we are married. I'm not on earth with you in person. I am by spirit. So my response won't be to you directly. Instead, who is a witness to you? Who is a witness for you? The executors of the covenant, heaven and earth. He says, I'll answer the heavens. They shall answer the earth and the earth shall answer with grain With new wine, with oil, they shall answer Jezreel. Now watch this. Deuteronomy 30, he says this, choose life. Heaven and earth will be literally, and this is my translation, heaven and earth will be the executors. Jesus will be the witness. Today, Jesus says, I am your husband. So let me speak to the executors. Whenever you ask God for something, Jesus doesn't respond directly to you. Now, I'm not taking away that he speaks to you. I'm not saying that at all. But what I'm saying is his answer to us comes to the heavens first, then to the earth, and the earth responds. Now, how does the earth respond? If God's answer for you is found in the earth, what does the earth respond with? The grain, the wine, the oil. What is that that we take every single week? The communion. Something so simple and so small. God says, my answer for every problem is this right here. Think about it. How did Adam plunge all of us into sin, darkness, and death? He ate. God's answer for every problem you experience in darkness and death is to do what? Eat. (laughs) Is it? Eat. Eat your way out of the dark. Eat your way out of the problem. Eat your way out of that situation. Because every answer I have for you is not going to come, uh, let me say this, oh Lord, I need a brand new car. Okay, wake up the next morning, there's a car with a bow on it. The title's already been written out. And don't worry about payment, the payment's already been paid. Now, if you do that for me, that will be my answer from God. But let me say this, God's answer for you is not, let me me, uh, put a house right in front of your house on the same lot with a bow on it. God's answer for you is, hey, I'm talking to the heavens, the heavens talk to the earth, the earth respond to you. I am the witness, heaven and earth are the executors. Are you with me? I love it. Now, the reason why I say I love that so much, again, because there's never something so big and so complicated. God says, I want to make everything simple. It doesn't matter where you're at. If you need my supply, find something to eat and something to drink because it's not the grape juice and it's not this piece of bread that tastes like paper. It's the faith you put behind it. When you sit down and say, hey, look, like I told I told the story years ago when I first caught a hold of the truth of communion, I used to eat at Bojangles every day for lunch. And what I would do is I'd go down there and I'd get a Bojangles biscuit and I'd get sweet tea. And I would sit there in Bojangles and I would take communion with a Bojangles biscuit and sweet tea. And you know what? I saw God move. It is not the substance. It's the faith we put with it. It's the faith we put with it. And God is saying, if you need me to do something, talk to me, then go take this. Talk to me. Then go take this. When you ask God for something, Jesus said, when you ask, believe that you receive and you'll get it. When you ask God for something, believe that you receive it and then go actually get it. Aren't, Aren't you glad you can take communion anywhere and everywhere and get the answer you need in that moment? Are you with me? I love it. Now, I didn't want to put this up here for the sake of having too much. But when I saw this, hold on, when I saw this right here, I'll betroth you in Aleph Tav, I thought, let me keep looking up. And when I looked up 21 and 22, let me say this. Jesus, name is everywhere. (laughs) It's everywhere. In fact, verse 21, it says this. It shall come to pass in that day that I, Aleph Tav, will answer, says the Lord. I, Aleph Tav, will answer the heavens and they shall I'm sorry, and they, Olive top shall answer the earth. And the earth, Olive top, shall answer with grain, with new wine, with oil. They shall answer, Olive top, Jezreel. I mean, his name is everywhere in this. (laughs) In these two verses, his name just keeps popping up, left and right, left and right. Because he wants you to know, hey, look, when you ask me for something, I'm going to follow through with it. You can never ask me for something that I won't see to it that you don't get it. He said, well, Matthew, I've been praying for it, and I've been praying for it. But have you been taking communion for it? Have you been taking communion? Because his answer for you is not something that will fall from the skies, land in your front yard. His answer for you is take this and eat this. And heaven and earth respond. Heaven and earth respond. They are the executors. Jesus is the witness. Now, in the Old Testament and what we saw in Deuteronomy, he says, "Olive top will be a witness against them. But on this side of the cross, because all our sin was put on him, now he's not a witness against us. He is a witness for us. When you go to God and the devil says, how can you ask God for this? Jesus says, I'll take it from here. Let me finish your prayer. <laughs> let me finish it for you. Oh, Father, this is what Matthew needs. I'm a witness for him. And every time we take communion, we're receiving the answer. And everyone said, amen. amen. Now, let me show you this. In the book of Acts, before and I'm coming to a story in Numbers, But in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 20, let me show you this cool story. In Acts 20, verse 7, it says, Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, pause, the disciples came together to do what? Break bread. In the book of Acts, every time you see break bread is always communion. Always communion. It's never they just came together to eat. Yes, they ate, but they came together to break bread. Now let me say this. Keep reading. It says, when they came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. Now, let me say this. If Paul is in town, I love the apostle Paul. If Paul is in town, I'm not coming together to break bread. I'm coming together to let Paul talk as long as he wants to, because it's Paul. But even though Paul had the greatest revelation, even though the other apostles who actually were with Jesus, they looked at him and said, receive him because his revelation is hard to be understood. But it's right. Even though they knew that Paul was there, they still didn't come together to hear Paul. I know we come to church to worship the Lord. We come to church to hear a speaker. We come to church to dive into God's word and get truth. But let me say this. The first church did not come together for that. Keep in mind, none of them had this. None of them. They had to go off memory. <laughs> now, knowing that, they came together to do what? Break bread. It was important that at the beginning of the week, they said, hey, we cannot miss the opportunity to come together together. Take communion. Jesus had one meal, and he said, do this as often as you do it in remembrance of me. And they said, hey, every week let's come together just to do that one thing, that one thing, one thing. When they came together, that's what they came together to do. So that means they opened their service with what? Communion. Are you with me? And watch this. Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. That's why I don't feel so bad when our sermons go long. Thank you, Paul. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together, which is also the word lights, which Ms. Cook, this is what we were talking about last week. Verse nine. And in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus. I feel like I should have had that prepared before I got here. Messed that name up. Who was sinking into a deep sleep. He was overcome by sleep. And as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Now watch this. But when Paul went down, I'm sorry, but Paul went down fell on him and embracing him said, do not trouble yourselves for his life is in him. Now, when he had come up, he had broken bread and eaten and talked a long while. Let me say this. For a long time, when I read verse 11, it says, now when he had come up, my thought was he went down, he brings the young boy back to life and the young boy comes back up. But keep reading. When he had come up, had broken bread and eaten and talked a long while, even till daybreak, he departed. It wasn't the young boy that came up. Who came up? Paul went down, said he's not dead, left him there, <laughs> went back upstairs, kept preaching. Then verse 20, sorry, verse 12. And they brought the young man in alive and they were not a little comforted. Now, let me say this. You say, well, Matthew, it's just the way it's worded. It's not. I've been reading a book called. Um, gosh, man, what was it called? I can't remember. Uh, <laughs> It's something, it's the same guy who wrote Jesus to Middle Eastern Eyes. He's a PhD director, seminary school, and he explains Greek. He explains how Greek wording works. If you understand how, and I am no Greek scholar by far, but if you understand how Greek wording works, even if you go look this up for yourself, and I encourage you to do this. In verse 11, I'm telling you, it says when he came up, notice it doesn't say when he came up, and he had broken bread, and he had eaten, and he talked a long while. By pulling out that simple noun, he, What he's saying is everything that happens afterwards follows up with the person that it started with. So by saying now, when he had come up, what he's saying is Paul left that young man laying on the ground, probably dead. Left him there. He said out loud to everyone else, don't worry, his life is back in him. But when he came back up, notice what he did before he started preaching again. When he came back up, he did what? He opened his service with this. When the young boy died, he went back down there. Don't worry, he's alive, everyone. He came back up and said, let's take communion again. Isn't that crazy? (laughs) I'm telling you, if they, let me say this. They saw miracles that we have yet to see. If they could see miracles that we have yet to see, what did they do that we probably need to do more of? The Holy Communion. It's how they opened their service, and then when God moved with power, it's how they followed up. They didn't just say, let's take communion so we see God's power. They took it to see it. And then when they saw it, they followed up by saying, okay, now let's take it again. And these are the types of things that they saw. People falling out of third stories. No, they saw people, dead people coming back to life. And that's the power behind it. <laughs> and everyone said. Now watch this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the apostle Paul talking about communion. The one who took communion after leaving a, a dead man down there. <laughs> the same one says this. He's quoting Jesus, and he said, look, what I receive from Jesus, I'm giving directly to you. And when Jesus had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat, colon, meaning there's a pause. Jesus said, take, eat. While they're eating, he said this, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, notice this is my body, which is broken for you. Say for me. me. One more time. Say for me. Now, I'm going to show you why that's important in just a second. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, notice when he talks about the cup, he doesn't necessarily say for you. We know why the cup exists and it exists for us. But when it comes to the body, he says, hey, my body was broken for you. All right, one more time, for you. So in verse 26, he says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Now, in an unworthy manner, we'll explain in just a second. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For or because he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks to himself, not what? discerning the Lord's body. Now, how do you do it in an unworthy manner? Not discerning the Lord's body. Some people say, well, you do it in an unworthy manner by sinning. You have to repent before you do it. We've talked about that since we started our church. (laughs) The body is for our physical need. The cup qualifies us. If you have sin, you are qualified to take it because his blood was shed for the remission of our sin. So the cup qualifies you to take it but the body was broken for you. Now watch this. It says, for he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Now I've said this before, but I've never actually shown you. The word discern in the Greek is the word diakrino. Dia means uh, through or by the channel or by the means of. Krino means to separate something, literally to determine something. Put the two together, diakrino means to separate thoroughly. To separate thoroughly. Now, what does that mean? Look at this. This is my body, which is broken for you. Discern, separate clearly or thoroughly. Meaning what? When you take the bread, separate your sickness from yourself. When you take the bread, and we're going to do it in just a moment. But when you're holding the bread, see the sickness that you are struggling with. See the pain that you have in your own body. And then with your eyes closed, see it on Jesus. You see, for a long time, when I would do that, I would always say, uh, if I had a cold, I see Jesus carrying colds. You know, um, when my back was hurting, I saw Jesus with back pain. And the Lord said, son, diacrino, literally means separate it thoroughly. Don't just separate it, separate it very thoroughly. How do you do it thoroughly? Don't just see Jesus with a back pain, see Jesus with your back pain. Are you with me? See Jesus with your cold. See Jesus with your sickness, with your disease. In the book of Matthew, he says this, he carried all their sicknesses and carried all their pain. In Isaiah 53, we talk about it all the time. It says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. The word griefs, sicknesses, sorrows, pains, physical pains. Don't just see Jesus at the cross suffering with the same thing. See him suffering with your problem. And when you see it with your problem, you know what happens? You've now separated it thoroughly. Diacrino. Now, if you follow up, he says this, for this reason, many in the church, the next verse, I didn't put it up here. He says, for this reason, for what reason? Not separating the sickness thoroughly. For this reason, many in the church are weak, sick, and die or fall asleep. But when you put the two together, why are there many in the church that are weak? Why are there many in the church that are sick? Why are there many in the church that are dying? Because when they take the bread, They're not taking the sickness on them and saying, no, he carried my sickness. That's where my sickness is. And let me say this. The same sickness cannot be in two places at once. I can't have back pain and Jesus have my back pain at the same time. I have to see it on him. Keep in mind, Adam plunged all of us into this mess by doing what? Eating. Back pain never existed until Adam ate from the wrong tree. Meaning, (laughs) because of sin... Now, I had to deal with back pain. But when I eat, Jesus carried my back pain. He paid for it. He paid for it. And he carried it. So if Jesus paid for it and he carried it, God would be unjust to let me endure it. So when I eat, this is God's answer. Again, when I cry out to him, he responds to the heavens. The heavens respond to the earth. The earth responds with what? The grain, the wine, the oil, the Holy Communion. You still with me? Everyone said, amen. amen. Now, let me close with this story in Numbers 21. Just so you know, in that story in Acts, Paul started in the early morning. He preached all day till midnight. Numbers 21. Now, Numbers 21, keep in mind the, um, there's the children of Israel, they've left Egypt. They've crossed over the Red Sea. They've already gone to Mount Sinai. They've already received the Ten Commandments. So now they're under the law. And don't forget, when you are under the law, when you sin, God punishes quickly. When you sin, God punishes. You're responsible for your sin under the law. So when we pick up in Numbers chapter 21, it says in verse 4, it says, Then they, the children of Israel, they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. Let me make a side note real quick. I'm one of those people that I can't wait to go see all the Bible sites. I want to go to, I want to go see all the Bible sites one day, one day I will. And one of the places on my list is uh, Mount Sinai. I want to see Mount Sinai. I just want to see it. Now there's a story that I've told this before and we'll cut this out. There's a story of these two guys. One was an archeologist, a historian uh, specifically for the Bible. Another one was like a Navy SEAL. And they came together and said, let's go find all these Bible places and prove that the Bible is real. So they take this video camera and they go, and they go, just based on what the Bible says, and they find the real Mount Sinai. Now, when they found it, the way they could prove it was this. Just outside of, just at the bottom of the mountain, at the base of the mountain, there's these rocks behind fences. And on the rocks, there's these carvings of like, it looks like animals on four legs. What is that? The golden calf. Keep in mind, the Jews left Egypt where they flourished with hieroglyphics. Pictures were how they wrote. So at the base of Mount Sinai, they see hieroglyphics of calves or cows. All right? Just beyond those drawings in, in eyesight range, there's this massive, massive mountain. And on the top of the mountain, the top of the mountain is black. The Bible says that when God came down on Mount Sinai in Hebrews, that the mountain burned with God's wrath, fire and fury. Right. So the top of the mountain is literally burnt. They have to go through a fence because the Muslim army has fenced it off. They don't want anybody to go behind it. Keep in mind, if anyone can prove that God met on Mount Sinai, that means that God gave the Jews the Ten Commandments. That means that the Jews are right. That means Islam is wrong. So the the Islamic, the the Muslim army, the Islamic military, they section it all off with fences. You can't actually go on it. You can only see it from a distance. But these two guys, like idiots, these two guys cut the fence, break through, and they go inside. When they get inside, they find, guess what, a rock split from the top to the bottom. Not from the bottom up, but from the top from the bottom. Massive boulder. And they it's all on film. And just beyond that, you can see a rock bed that looks like it's gone through a, a weathering process. Meaning that at some point, water has rushed down on that point. Now you say, well, that was like 1,500 plus almost uh, 3,500 years ago. You're right. But you can still see the difference. The only way you could do that is this. If God gave them water for one day, it wouldn't cause that much weathering. When Moses hit the rock and water came through the came from the rock... The water supply probably never ended for years, if not decades. God probably made an oasis in the middle of the desert for his people who only needed water at one time. When God provides, it's never just enough of what you need. It's always an oversupply. And 3,500 years later, you can still see the fruit of what God did there at Mount Sinai. So then they keep going to the top and they're walking on black rocks and you can see it. And they start to collect... Um, some of the samples and they put them in bags and they sneak back out, get in their uh, Jeep and they ride home. And when they go home, they put the whole thing together and they send the rock samples off to a couple of scientists and say, what is what's in this rock? And guess what they find in the rock? Aluminum, aluminum. They say, well, Matthew, what does, what does aluminum have to do with what we're talking about? Let me explain. You know what happens to aluminum when you heat it up? What color does aluminum turn when you put fire to it? I'm looking at my sister. She knows what co- she doesn't know. Does anyone know what color aluminum turns? It turns sapphire blue, sapphire blue. When Moses went up and God gave him the Ten Commandments, what did God write the Ten Commandments on? Stone. When God gave him the stone, keep in mind, God was angry. The whole mountain burnt. When Moses came down, he came down carrying sapphire blue stones. Now, why am I telling you that? When sapphire blue met with the law, the Bible says that the letter does what? Kills, but the spirit gives life. Whenever grace and law met, how many people died? 3,000. But on the day of Pentecost, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, and the new covenant, no law, pure grace, pure sapphire. Guess what happens? 3,000 people receive life, get saved. And the story of Ananias and what was his wife? Sapphira. (laughs) Interesting name there. Sapphira, you see a picture of blue. Ananias, his name, is actually the word for grace. Put the two together, you have grace and sapphire blue. Sapphire blue is a reference, sapphire, literally a reference to what? At Mount Sinai. Put law with grace. Ananias and Sapphira, both of them end up dead. <laughs> are you with me? How do we get on that? Nice little detour. So anyways, where are we? So they journeyed. Oh, that was a side note. So the reason why I said all that was this. If you want to go and you want to find the real Mount Sinai, you can Google Mount Paran. It's actually not under the name. Mount. If you Google Mount Sinai, it takes you to a different place in the Sinai Peninsula. It's not there. If you Google it, you'll actually find it in the wilderness of Paran. I looked it up and I uh, actually got on Google Maps and I literally followed the road till I found it. <laughs> and I found the picture of the, of the real mountain. So, man, I can't wait to go. But anyways, uh, it says so they left the Red Sea, they journeyed through the land of Edom and the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God and Moses. They said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. And our soul loathes this worthless bread. Now, I'll put that in gold because I want you to see what were they talking about? What bread were they talking about? They were talking about the manna. Now keep in mind, as far as God is concerned, they said, we're hungry. God said, okay, fine. You want food? You want bread? I'll give you bread. Before the law, God says, you complain? I'll give it to you anyways. You complain? I'll respond. You complain, I'll respond. That's why when you complain to God, let me say this, he can still give it to you. Thank God for grace, right? So they complain and God says, I'll give you manna in the mornings. And what happens is this, the manna will rest on the dew. It won't actually hit the ground, it'll rest on the dew. In Psalm, David says, your grace is like the dew. Are you with me? So manna rests on top of the dew. It actually doesn't touch the earth. When Jesus came down, he was with us, but he was not one of us. He came like us. But he himself did not touch the curse until he found his way to the cross at the cross was the first time God touched the curse and absorbed all our curse into himself. Like in the story of Gideon, he said, oh, Lord, if this is really you talking to me, prove it. I'll put the fleece out tonight and tomorrow morning. Let all the dew be soaked up into this fleece and nowhere else. A picture of Jesus when he came down. When he came down, there was no grace or dew on anyone else. Jesus had all of it to himself. (laughs) And then he said, okay, Lord, if this is really you, one more test. Tomorrow morning, I'll put the same fleece out. Fleece, sheep, wool. I'll put the same fleece out. And tomorrow morning, let there be no dew on the fleece, but let the dew be everywhere else. And God said, I'll entertain you. Fine. The next morning he came out and guess what? The fleece had no more grace, had no more dew. Likewise, at the cross, All the grace from him was dispersed to all of us. What do we see in Hosea? The earth will respond with grain, new wine, and oil. They will call it Jezreel. You know what Jezreel means in Hebrew? God will scatter. (laughs) God will scatter. When the earth responds with communion, when you receive it, God is scattering your response. He's scattering his response for you. You see, if God only sows it in one spot, you only have one place to receive. But now when you take this, his response is everywhere. His favor is everywhere. You only ask God to get you out of one problem. And you find that with that one problem, God scatters his answer all over. Grace hits you at home. Grace hits you at work. Grace hits you at the bank. And everyone said, grace hits you everywhere you turn. <laughs> so anyways, he says, hey, our soul loads this worthless bread. As far as they were concerned, it was manna. And they said, okay, God, okay. Moses, we're tired of eating the same bread every morning. But as far as God was concerned, who did the manna speak of? Jesus, he said in John chapter six, I am the true manna that came down from heaven, the one that you may eat of it and not die. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people because in their eyes, I'm tired of this worthless bread. Now, let me say this. When we eat this, it's a type and shadow of the manna, but we have the real substance. So who are this verse five? They're saying we're tired of this worthless bread. It's a picture of a believer who looks at communion and says, uh, you know, it's not that serious. I should take it, but, you know, it's not that serious. I'll take it when I get home and they don't take it or I'll take it. I'll take it next Sunday. It, manna, you know, I'm sorry, not manna. This communion, it, it is what it is. I see why we take it, but it's not that important. Our soul loathes this worthless bread. As far as God is concerned, this is his answer for you. So again, they're under the law. So in verse six, so the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit. I'm sorry. Uh, and they bit the people and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore, the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned, for we've spoken against the Lord and have sinned against, I'm sorry, and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. Now, I've said this before many times, and I'll close with this story. I've said this before, and I love it. I love it. I love it. I had to share it again. Their prayer was, pray that he takes away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, okay, I'll remove the serpents. Is that what he said? What's What's God's answer? Make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. God's answer was not, get rid of serpents. Okay, Moses, all the serpents have to leave. God's answer was, no, I'm going to make you immune. Now, all the more, while I was meditating on this, and I knew I'd shared this before, the more I was meditating on this, the Lord just reminded me of something I had known for years. Did you know that the whole time they were in the wilderness, these snakes were there the entire time? There's always snakes in the world. This is not a new mystery. Where did the snakes come from? The snakes were always there. But as long as they were in God's favor, they never saw the snakes. The moment they complained because they were under the law, God pulled his protection back. The snakes came in. People start dying. God says, okay, you could live among them and you never knew they were there. Now you want me to get rid of them. I'm not going to get rid of them. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to make you immune. How does he do it? Put a snake, bronze serpent on a bronze pole. And what does he say? When he looks at it, he shall live. God's answer to your request many times is not what you wanted it to be. You see, for me, I'm saying, oh, God, get me out of this again. I made another mistake. He's going to rain down fire and fury on me. My boss called me into his office. I love to talk about work. My boss called me into his office the other day. It was my wife. She called me into the room. She said, you, we gotta talk. No, she's not my boss. I was at work the other day and I got in trouble. <laughs> she's a, she's a tough boss. No, I got to work the other day and somebody had made a mistake and I knew they made a mistake. And, uh, I was telling the reverend this morning the same story. As someone had made a mistake and I knew they made a mistake. And I walked in and I do what I always do when I get in trouble. I say, Lord, I'm the righteousness of God in Christ. I just receive your favor right now. And I walked in and at last, you know, that's my, that's my Hail Mary prayer every time I get in trouble. So I threw this prayer out there. I opened the door. I walk in and all of a sudden he says, sit down. Uh, I want to buy some walkie talkies for the team. I'm like, what? You know? <laughs> and we just have these conversations and we started off about walkie talkies End with him telling me, Matt, you should read this book and you should read that book. And I'm telling him, have you ever heard of Andy Stanley? Oh man, he's this great pastor. I listened to his podcast and we're sitting up there chilling. And all of a sudden in my walkie, I hear Holly go, uh, are you coming down anytime soon? <laughs> uh, we got things going on. And my boss is like, Oh yeah, we got to get back to work. So again, what starts off like you're terrified, you don't know what's going to happen, is really God just making you immune to what everyone else is not immune to yet. All right? The Lord wants to make you immune to the problem. Now again, his answer was not, let's get rid of serpents. His answer was, let me show you how to make sure that this never becomes a problem for you ever again. Now notice what his answer was. So Moses made a bronze serpent, put it on a pole. And so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Notice what's the answer. What's God's answer for them? See it on Jesus. Discern it thoroughly. You've been bitten by a snake. Now see that problem, not that problem. See your problem on a pole. Do you get it? Don't just see a problem on a pole. See your problem on the pole. And let me say this. Why are we saying polling? Let me say this. The root word for the word pole is actually cross. It's actually cross see your problem your problem don't just see financial problems see your financial problem there on the cross don't just see your back don't see a back pain see your back pain there on the cross and God's promise to them was what everyone who looks shall live my question for you this morning we're going to take communion my question is this how much do you value the bread how much do you value it we're not like the children of israel where god says if you don't value it you're going to be in trouble If you don't value it, I'm going to rain down fire and fury. Snakes are going to find you in your home. But the question is this. If this is God's answer for us, how much do we value it? Let's take communion. You have it? You have it ready? Let's get the bread. And if you would just hold it out in front of you for a second. Like we said earlier, if you would just close your eyes. Now that we know what the word diacrino means, to separate thoroughly, we're going to do it together this morning. If you're here this morning and you're struggling with anything at all, I want you to know while you're holding this bread. Let me say this. The body covers every physical need you will ever be faced with. It's not just health and wholeness. It's finances. It's everything. It's restoration. It's everything physical that you ever need. Jesus suffered physically for you. And the cup is to remove all your sin to qualify you to do this. So while you're holding the bread out in front of you, if you're suffering with anything physical this morning, with your eyes closed, I want you to see Jesus this morning. I want you to see your problem on him. Not just a problem, but see your problem on him. What helped me last night, I said, you know what? I'm going to remove in my mind. I'm going to remove all the other scars. <laughs> I'm going to remove the, the, the crown of thorns. I'm going to remove all of it. Not that I'm taking it away from him. But I want to see just that one problem on there. I want to see that payment, not all the other payments. I want to see that payment made for me. And I want to see Jesus carrying that problem for me. So while you're holding your bread out in front of you, I just want you to see it there on him. And just quietly under your breath, you can just name it. Now just repeat after me, Lord Jesus, I thank you that on your body, on the tree, you carried my sickness, my disease, my illness, my poverty, my lack, my chaos, my panic, my stress, you carried it all, even the pain, so that I could be free. So that I could have peace and wholeness and prosperity, true wealth, your favor manifested in every area of my life. So as I take this bread, I declare that I am healthy. My family is healthy. My family is whole. My family is prosperous. There is none sick in my house. There is none with a disease in my house. There is none that are poor in my house. And I thank you for it. In Jesus name. Amen. My English took a turn for the worse there. But we'll cut that out on the podcast. <laughs> if you would hold the cup in front of you. And just while you're holding it, let me show you this. If you would just close your eyes one more time. I'm going to tell you this on the night of the Passover. God told him, I want you to take the blood and put it over your doorpost. And it used to always throw me off. I could never put it together because he said this. I will send the angel of death out to take the firstborn. And he says, when I see the blood, I will pass over And I thought that just always threw me off because I said, Lord, you're not the angel of death. You're sending him. But then you say, when I see the blood, I will pass over. How does that work? And it just always threw me off. Even as a kid, I couldn't put one and two together. And one day I was reading a book uh, by a man named Perry Stone. And in the book, he explained that the word Passover is actually poorly translated. And it shows up again in Isaiah. And what the word Passover literally means is this. I will spread my wings over you. Death will have to pass over. So with your eyes closed while you're holding this cup, we're about to drink the cup. We're effectively declaring that the blood is over us and over our house, that the blood is over our church. And as we are effectively doing that, as we are effectively doing that, we're declaring that we are under the shadow of his wings, that death must pass over everyone in this church. Death must find someone else. Death has to move along. It must move along. So, Lord Jesus, if you would just be after me, Lord Jesus, as I hold this cup, I declare that me, my family, my house, and my church, we are under the shadow of your wings. Death is moving on. There can be no death in this house because your blood is here. Your blood has made us righteous forever removed our sin and given us eternal redemption in you. So I thank you for this cup because your word says that the life of the flesh is in the blood. So as I drink this cup, I declare, me, my family, and my church, we are alive, well, well, whole, and living because of you. And we thank you for it, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Thanks for listening to Center Church Podcast. We trust that you've been blessed. If you'd like to receive more of our content in the future, you can email us at centercharlotte@gmail.com, at gmail.com or just visit our website at centercharlotte.org. Thanks for tuning in and may God's grace cover you in every area of your life.